Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Big Bottles to Small Bottles. Joining me today, I have one of my past preceptors and current colleague, Daryush. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about uh, precepting. So, Daryush, welcome to the show. I am actually really thrilled and honored to be have been asked to do this. Um, so much respect for you, Vasily, and everything that you've accomplished in such a short time. So, when you asked me to be on this, I, I truly, I, I told Shane, your co-resident, past co-resident, that I was truly honored to be a part of, of what you're doing. Oh, thank you. So uh, I guess before we jump in a little bit too much, just because a variety of people could be listening to this, do you want to take a second and just kind of explain like what precepting is maybe for someone who's not in pharmacy? For sure. Um, precepting, I would liken the most to an apprenticeship. Um, I think people understand the concept of an apprenticeship quite well from whatever past experiences they may have personally had or just seen on, um, I don't know, media. Um, but it's it's very much like that. I think about like different trades and and how uh, while you can study books and um, and take tests to qualify you for whatever that trade is, um, there's an experiential component, and you could be thrown into that and have to figure it out yourself. But what seems to be more effective is having kind of like a mentor um, or a master uh, who who takes you on as an apprentice and, and you learn from them. And that's sort of how I feel um, preceptorship is, is, is you take on this role of, of master to an apprentice where you can um, then, then train them in your ways, in your specialty, in your area, or for your particular job, and really impart the pearls that um, that that you have gleaned from past preceptors that you've had, as well as what you've learned in your your current role or past roles. Yeah, I actually really like that definition. I think uh, for me, one of the most valuable things that a preceptor can bring to the table is like, how do you tease out what's like the most important thing? So everyone can read guidelines, everyone can read studies, but how do we actually practice, right? Like what guidelines do we choose to follow? If there's contradicting guidelines, like which ones do we preferentially follow? Uh, sometimes you might read something like, um, I know IV vitamin K is like, if you look at up to date or like any drug information website, it'll basically say, don't do IV vitamin K because there's the risk of anaphylaxis. But very quickly, you realize that in practice, we use IV vitamin K all the time. And people don't go into anaphylactic shock. Uh, and just having someone who has that experience um, to kind of guide you as, as a new learner is super important. And I think at this point, it's worth pointing out as well that you yourself have been a preceptor for a few years now. Uh, you precept both residents and students. Um, as opposed to myself, who I'm kind of fresh out of residency, and I really have only truly precepted one student as well as like overseeing students while I cover various shifts. So uh, we might, as, as we kind of tease throughout through these ideas, you know, we might have um, conflicting, not conflicting, but kind of just different viewpoints, which I think will be beneficial. Uh, you mentioned that it was kind of like a apprenticeship. Um, and obviously there's different stages to an apprenticeship, you know, your first day, the first day apprentice is always going to be a lot uh, different than kind of a last day apprentice or a three month in apprentice. 
So kind of how do you how do you go about precepting like big differences between precepting students and residents? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question and and, and even um within a residence development at an institution at their in their residency uh, there's a different approach as they progress through um, even just that one year of residency and and that approach is changed yet again when they do if they choose to to move on to a PGY2 specialty um, I think one of the interesting things with having PGY1s versus students is well there's a lot of, of differences but one of the big differences is sort of the investment in the individual um, not to say that students are an oversight because of course we 100% care about the development of our students um, because they they will be our future residents so uh, we want to make sure that we're giving them the right foundation to be able to move forward but I think a lot of what student precepting hopes to achieve is on the level of exposure and really getting people out of the classroom and into you know for example in my site uh, into the hospital and rounding with a medical team um, for some people depending on what their school is and how it's structured they may have never interacted with medical students or medical residents before and that kind of brings us back to that whole theoretical practice of you know you could read the, all the books but you you need the actual um, experience to to be able to um, put put that all into play. Um, to me, very much of what pharmacy school is is just learning the language of healthcare and medicine, um, being able to speak to someone in in that language, uh, knowing what these terms mean, and having a very very rudimentary basic knowledge. I didn't realize how basic my knowledge of pharmacy was until I. This was, was studying for my CP or not CPJE, my um, NAPLEX. Uh, I think that that's when I was like, wow, there's a lot that I do not really have down that well. And then when I actually went into residency, I was like, okay, I thought I knew more from from preparing for my NAPLEX, but now I realize that there's, you know, I feel like I came in with like 10% of the knowledge. Um, that I needed to to be successful by the end of residency, but you know, fortunately, you have residency to to give you that. Um, so, I think that each stage in your career serves a different purpose, and as such, uh, each um, teacher learner opportunity is crafted differently to to be successful. So, like I was saying, in, in pharmacy school, it's really just learning the language, and then student um, student rotations is very much your opportunity to get the exposure and to start learning how to interact and and the subtleties of of interacting with a physician and a nurse and other pharmacists um, and I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways as well as you know what do I like what do I like ambulatory do I like inpatient something else nuclear pharmacy whatever that might be but the longevity that preceptors have with residents I think changes uh, that perspective a lot as well as to how we look at the resident because we are looking at a developmental timeline um, where where we graduate residents and, and we want to show that that they have benefited from the residency and um, you know at my institution we really take on the preceptor roles of um, you know there's direct instruction which is mostly should have been taken care of in their their 
um, didactics when they were in pharmacy school, as well as those uh, early student rotations. But then the modeling part, I think, is is really important, especially for those that may not have had acute care rotations or um, maybe not rotations that were quite as acute as at our site. Um, and then granted that they progress as they should, um, then moving on from the modeling to coaching. So having them actually doing these tasks and, and this workup and these interventions and this team rounding. Um, and then finally, when they are pretty much self-sufficient, then you can move into a facilitative role where you are essentially just allowing them to fly free and being a, a supportive presence in the background to guide them. You can apply all those preceptor roles to students for sure, but I think realistically, there's just not as much longevity with each um, student to be able to put all of these roles into play. And just based on their development and their stage that they're at, um, usually you don't get to a facilitative role with students on rotation either. So it's more kind of like some direct instruction, some modeling primarily. I, I don't know if I said some, I should say primarily modeling and uh, and followed by coaching by the end. Um, so I think that that's how I would sort of define these different periods within your education as a developing pharmacist. Yeah, and I think uh, that, that's a really great way to summarize it. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out that typically when we see Appy students, um, it's in their last year of pharmacy school, they are unlicensed, and it's for about six weeks uh, is a rotation. And then when we see residents, uh, a residency in pharmacy is typically one year, and the resident is expected to be licensed for at least three quarters of that. So they can actually make kind of big boy pharmacist decisions. They can verify medications. They have a license that says they're allowed to practice pharmacy. Uh, so you kind of have a lot more leeway with the uh, different tasks and projects um, that they can undertake on their own. Right. And, um, and you know, kind of Marvel geek in me, I'm, I feel like uh, as you progress through, it's sort of like with great power comes great responsibility. And you now have this license and the ability to put in orders and change the course of people's lives, really, based on treatment. I mean, those situations may not come up all the time where, where the decisions or recommendations you make on rounds may actually have a meaningful impact on someone's life, but they do come up enough. And, uh, and you know, there's nothing more satisfying than identifying a major issue or, or moving someone towards uh, a, a treatment option that ends up changing their course. Um, and I think that you really get to experience that as a resident because of of that, you know, quote unquote, like new power that you have now um, obtained, you know, your your licensure in the state to be able to be a provider um, in a way that you weren't before as a student. Yeah, and me coming like fresh out of residency, I think one of the things that I actually <laughs> I actually miss is having that preceptor there is kind of like a sounding board because um, obviously when you're practicing, you know, you can't always have someone double check your stuff. Like obviously if some, like, something complicated comes up, you can always bounce ideas off your colleagues. Um, but it's not that same uh, relationship as between like a preceptor and a resident, I guess. 
Um, do you ever do you ever like have moments like that where you're talking with a colleague and you kind of take on more of a preceptor role or even more of like a like a learner role when you're talking with the colleague? Yeah, you know, I, as you were even saying all of that, I was thinking back, like going through my memory banks and uh, reflecting on my time as a student, as well as my time as a new uh, new pharmacist after residency, and thinking about some of those interactions. And I remember very clearly, um, I had a rotation at Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco as a student, and it was a pediatrics rotation. And I was in the main pharmacy, which they have this beautiful main pharmacy on the fourth floor that like has this gorgeous view and, you know, not not like most inpatient pharmacies where it's either the basement or the first level with no windows. But um, but anyways, uh, I I was up there and um, they had a quite a few young pharmacists, so I can only assume had you know recently finished residency and they had a lot of residents as well. But um, this was the full-fledged pharmacists completed residency and they were staffing in, in the main pharmacy. And they encounter all kinds of odd things because Benioff Children's Hospital, they, they get all kinds of weird cases sent to them. Um, they're really just, uh, you know, they, they really have to kind of try to slap together what, what level of evidence they can for some of the things that they come across. And so um, it happened very frequently that you know, pharmacists would be encountering these situations where there wasn't a very great, clear guidance um, on how to proceed or what was safe or what was the best option or really even just, is this wrong? Like, is is this an error? Is this intentional? And is this good? <laughs> because you're encountering so many strange things. Um, and it, this was an instance where it was unintentional modeling of preceptors where I would hear these pharmacists talking amongst each other and, um, you know, ones that had no problem with anything and who I looked up to as, wow, these are, these pharmacists just kind of know what they're doing. Um, and then they'd be like faced with a fluid question about, um, can we give just free water, nothing in it, sterile water and in this way? And, um, you know, how much TPA for this patient of, of this weight, um, to unclog their tube, like really kind of simple, basic things, but um, but very specific. And, and they were far along in their practice and they would still ask each other, hey, you know, I looked up this almost as if they were presenting to a preceptor um, as a learner. I looked up this and this is kind of what I found. Um, what do you think? Have you do you have any experience with this? So that kind of taught me an early lesson um, that made me chill out a little bit, which was that even when you're finished, you know, finished residency, you're even a few years out, you can always rely on your colleagues to be a sounding board for you. Now, they may not be taking the responsibility by sounding off with you, but they can at least offer you the perspective of another pharmacist so that you can see, am I doing something crazy? Should I think twice or maybe a third time about this? Um, and I think that that's quite valuable um, I know that now in my role, so many years later, I have that relationship with a lot of pharmacists. I would say I'd probably, you know, if we were staffing together, I'd be asking you if I encountered something I haven't really seen. Um, I'd be like, hey, what do you think about this? This is kind of what I found. And and does that make sense to you? Does this seem logical, um, you know, in the face of, of little evidence to support something? 
Um, so I think that really those relationships are what make us stronger after residency. And hopefully residency instills the idea that even though you may not have the preceptor to um, whose license basically is on the line if you screw up, um, but even if you don't have that preceptor who's uh, who's who's got your back for all of that gray stuff that you're trying to navigate, it doesn't mean that you have to make these decisions on your own and unilaterally, and that we are all stronger as one, you know, whether that's in your department or even, you know, curbing a colleague like a friend from pharmacy school or a co-resident who's at a new institution. Hey, what do you do over there when you for this? Have you ever seen this kind of an order before? Um, how would you manage this? Or even like logistical challenges. How do you, um, you know, build this in Epic or something like that? So uh, I think that that interaction should never die. You should always be able to to do that. It's just sort of a different framing where you're you're still taking personal responsibility at the end of the day. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I felt so uh, unconfident when I was like, oh, I have to feel like I have to talk to my colleagues all the time for some certain things. But hearing you kind of reiterate that that's what goes through every uh, pharmacist's head at one point or a time, I think should just give confidence to everyone out there that like your colleagues are there. Um, we all have different experiences, even though we all might be PGY1 or PGY2 trained. Some of us are just naturally um, or have spent the time reading up more on certain disease states than others. So kind of knowing who to talk to and um, when to ask them questions is very important. And when you were talking about um, the pharmacists at Benihoff going through or talk, discussing different ideas about like niche situ situations with each other, it reminded me of something that I was reading about on a, I, I follow a bunch of people on like Twitter. So I'm in like the med Twitter world kind of. Um, and something interesting that an ED doc posted uh, was this concept of like shadow boxing, where um, you kind of come up with a case primarily for learners you kind of come up with a case, right, about something weird or something that maybe isn't too common. And you uh, basically present the learner with this case and you say like, okay, uh, something super convoluted, right? Like, um, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but where it's, there's no, it's a gray area, right? There's no great answer. Um, and you talk with the learner and say like, walk me through your thought process. Uh, have you ever uh, encountered, has anyone at our institution ever done that before? Or is that like common practice at all? You know, I think that I probably do something like that with learners. Um, maybe not as elaborate as what you're describing in terms of the uh, the intricacies, but um, I mean, you, you may remember from, from when we were on rotation together, but... I like to really harp on pathophysiology. And so it may not be a gray area problem so much that I might be talking about as it is a, a depth of understanding. So I think that um, that often what's more important than the answer is the thought process. And, um, you know, is are you able to logically reason through things? I think that in many ways is the the most important skill for someone in healthcare. Vasily, you probably heard me say this before. Um, I, with everything becoming more 
and more protocolized, you know, algorithms developed, machines taking over for various more um, kind of monotonous tasks, but even also some of that higher level stuff, you know, you have clinical decision-making support, et cetera. Um, there is a good chance that that many jobs in healthcare will be replaced by robots and algorithms and such in the future. And my response to that, um, which I remember being asked this question, and, and that's when I really formulated an answer um, at an interview for um, for residency. Oh, no, wait, it was for pharmacy school. Um, but anyways, um, my answer to that is if your job can be replaced by an algorithm, then it probably should be um, because that is the direction that we should move into for progress. We shouldn't be necessarily protecting jobs that are beneath our abilities to automate. Um, we should be trying to find new higher level jobs for people um, that, that can use their expertise. And so similarly, I feel like if, if all we do as pharmacists is input order, you know, run algorithm, output, verification or deny, then you know, there's probably a sophisticated algorithm out there that can replace us. And it's not unique to pharmacy either. This is something that I think, you know, medicine or really many fields, you can program something. If you can do it as uh, as intricately and, and with complexity that it can account for all the variables, it may outperform like a primary care physician or hospitalist in certain ways. Um, and so that's where I think we need to think about how do you add value? And it's really in, for the time being at least, the critical thinking and logic. Um, it's weighing all of these variables, but also adding an experiential component and then also adding was part of this decision. Um, you know, what are these patient-specific factors? You know, what is their history? And you can really integrate a whole level of complexity. So this is my long and roundabout way of saying that I think the thought process is paramount in developing clinicians that will have longevity in the field of healthcare um, and really add value. I mean, you can have longevity and not add value, but also add value. And so whether that's, you know, a shadow boxing technique or just anything to really critically assess and develop logic and critical thinking um, I think that that is possibly one of the greatest takeaways from from any sort of preceptor learner interaction, whether that's student rotation or or later in residency. I know that's not exactly the question you asked, but that's sort of um, maybe a important point that I felt was was in there. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think um, being able to reason through gray area scenarios is super important. So what do you do when you have, uh, let's come up with two hypotheticals. You have a learner who is super strong. Um, they have good textbook knowledge. They have good critical thinking skills. Um, the logic and reasoning is all there. How do you treat that learner? And then also, how do you deal with maybe the learner that isn't super strong? Uh, the logic and reasoning isn't quite there. Um, but they have a good attitude at least. Let's say they have, hypothetically, they have a good attitude. Kind of, how would you go about working with those two uh, different types of learners? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, 
I think we often think of the former as the easier case, right? You know, they come in with, you know, teed up to be uh, almost at the residency level if they were a student or, you know, at the practicing level if they're a resident. And it seems like on paper that would be the easier scenario. But um, really precepting, I think, um, should never be easier. It should never really be, you know, we, we talk about it, how having a learner on when they're a resident who's licensed, you know, helps us out or, or should help us out. But I feel like if you're doing it right, it should never really save you time. Um, yes, you can offload certain tasks for the experiential benefit of the learner. But um, if it's not really benefiting the learner anymore, you should probably not just be giving those tasks to your learner just because you don't want to do them. Um, so um, I think that regardless of, of what type of learner you have, it should always be work. And um, I preface what I'm going to say next with that, because um, that means that even if you have that learner that is wonderful on paper and just looks like it's going to be a breeze, uh, if you're doing your preceptorship right, then it should still be just as challenging, if not more challenging, than the learner that doesn't come in with that skill. And the reason is that you need to ensure that you're creating a learning experience. My goal for every learner that comes on to service with me is never to get them to level X, you know, level 10 or whatever. Uh, some arbitrary number like that, that everyone who finishes my rotation needs to be a minimum of this, you know, number of competence units or whatever. Um, it should really just be that wherever they came in, that they have achieved a new personal best by the time that they leave. So someone who comes in weaker, um, quote unquote weaker with clinical knowledge, maybe has some deficits with regard to that, or maybe that's not their issue. Maybe it's confidence. Um, or maybe they have confidence um, and they have the the knowledge base, but their delivery is poor in terms of how they speak to people on the team, like their team dynamic communication skills are, are not the best. Um, all of those things are very real scenarios um, that you can encounter with learners, and they all need to be kind of treated differently. But the thing that they have in common is that they can all be improved on. And so by the end of the the rotation, then hopefully you have achieved a new personal best in what their um, what their opportunities were. So when it is just on the level of clinical knowledge um, or maybe uh, confidence, sometimes those things are quite easy to improve. You know, you can direct people towards papers or um, resources and, you know, do more topic discussion so that they have an, a chance to dialogue with you about the things that they've read. Um, but what I find more challenging is when they come in very competent. Uh, they've got the clinical, clinical knowledge. Maybe if this is a resident, for example, they had fantastic student rotations. And so then where can you meet them? Um, and the answer is sometimes that, that there may be things that they know better than you. And you have to accept that as the, the teacher, that, that your pupil <laughs> a, may, ex, may already be exceeding you in some ways. But that doesn't mean that you can't still provide uh, a positive learning experience for them, because what they don't have is the years of clinical experience. Um, and that
Oh no, Daryush, I think I lost you. Did your phone die on you? Oh no, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're back. You're back. Oh, weird. I have seemingly excellent signal, but let me know if uh, if I drop off at all again. Um, I was pretty. I was just saying that I think that the hardest part really is just when you have such a competent learner that you need to scrounge together what what pearls and and you know experience that you can so that you can provide them with an equally enriching experience to someone who doesn't come in with all that skill set. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's a great that's actually a really great way to look at it is everybody's going to start on different levels, different playing fields and uh we can't expect everyone to come in with the same knowledge base. Um, even though they might have come from the same school, people learn differently, they retain information differently. Uh, so I think that's a great way to kind of tackle providing both a maybe less well-informed and a super well-informed uh, pharmacy student to make sure that, or resident, to make sure that they have a, a strong learning experience still. And I guess this kind of segues into, um, well, I feel like what separates some preceptors from others is kind of their teaching style or not teaching style, but why, why do I teach, right? Like what, what drives me to be a preceptor, right? Am I a preceptor because um, it's part of my job description? Uh, am I a preceptor because I have a passion for teaching? And me personally, um, I have a passion for teaching and kind of what drives me to teach is that uh, I believe that by passing on kind of the knowledge that I've knowledge and wisdom that I've kind of accumulated uh, throughout my practice onto future students uh, and residents, uh, together we can improve the field of pharmacy and improve the value that we add to the healthcare system. Additionally, it feels super awesome to be able to inspire, uh, especially a student who's a little bit on the more struggling side to really inspire them to feel like they can pursue a residency and they can um, pursue more knowledge because working in healthcare, uh, it's all about being a lifelong learner and uh, trying to foster that natural curiosity um, in learners can be very rewarding once, you re once they start to get a hang of it. So I guess what are the reasons that you precept and why do you choose to teach? Yeah, that's that's another great question that I think is actually a really important one. And, you know, as you say all of that, I I would encourage learners to ask those questions of their preceptors. You know, I mean, I think that there's a way to do that without really coming across in a, a condescending or, or um, aggressive sort of way. But I think it's important to understand um, who who is imparting knowledge to you? Is it just someone you got paired with because that's how your school's match system worked in terms of uh, student rotations? Or is this someone that, that, like you said, like really wants to teach over just being part of a job description? Um, and, and there's both. And um, um, I mean, obviously, I think that, that a passion for teaching should be a requirement for for being a teacher but the reality is it's it's just not um, there's more need for 
preceptors than there necessarily are people who want to teach. And even furthermore, people who may really want to teach may just really not have the right soft skills or skill set to be a very effective teacher. Um, there's a component of that that just, I think, comes naturally to some and takes a lot of work for others. Um, and um, that's just also kind of a reality of, of not just preceptors and teachers in pharmacy, but, but really that's a kind of a worldwide theme. But for me personally, I mean, I guess I could back up. I realized I didn't really talk about myself and, and what I do too much, but um, I uh, did my undergrad at UCSD and then I worked in research for a few years before pursuing my PharmD at UCSF. And then I came down to San Diego to do my residency at Scripps Mercy, where I stayed. Um, and so I've pretty much been there uh, ever since. But my interest in teaching has kind of always been around. Um, I used to tutor and TA when I was in college and high school. And when I was, especially when I was in uh, at UCSF, I really took on a lot of different teaching opportunities because it's something that I really enjoyed. Um, I could talk about the benefits to me, which is, you know, obviously the joy of, of teaching someone else. There is something there that, that just is very rewarding to see that something you did allowed someone else to understand something um, that they did not before. But it also um, really helps you to solidify concepts for yourself. So I feel like I have become a more knowledgeable pharmacist as a result of my roles as a teacher. Um, so, you know, there, there's mutual benefits to teaching, but um, I think I just always knew that I had a passion for, for teaching and for that, that understanding and depth of, you know, medicine and wanting to share that with others. I had, um, I had a preceptor when I was on my internal medicine rotation who really inspired me to feel like not only I could do acute care, but, um, but that acute care was something worth doing, um, that it was exciting and that it was dynamic. And so I try to kind of impart that role on learners when they come to me and, and make it exciting and make it dynamic. The other thing I think is I've been fortunate to have really, really excellent teachers. And I myself have studied a lot of um, various education pieces on on like newer deployment of education technology, whether that's like technologies and like actual electronic you know devices and and such or or even concepts like flipped classrooms. and um, and I think that one thing that most people can reflect on, even the ones that have had really excellent instructors and teachers like myself, is that we all have had not so good teachers. And I think that, and maybe this is only for the people who like to teach, maybe people who don't like to teach never reflect on this in particular, but I think that we all kind of think to these situations and say, if I, if I were teaching this class, if I did this, this is how I would do it. Like I could do so much better than this. And so knowing that these experiences exist, I feel like I, in many ways, uh, deepened my desire and love for teaching because 
I had gone through those situations where it was like, this is just could have been so good. And and let me make this better for somebody else so that they don't have to struggle with trying to absorb the material the way I did, um, you know, based on how I learn and, and what I think is um, an effective way of, of teaching. So I think it's, it's fueled by both a natural innate ability um, and desire, as well as that sort of like, I, you know, I can't let anyone else go through what I had to go through with these not so great teachers. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's very unfortunate, Darius. I'm sorry that that, that happened I to mean, you. I mean, you must have had that before. It's like you, I'm sure you've had, uh, probably even, you don't have to tell me, but I'm sure you've even had preceptors that, you know, maybe were... There, there were times where you were like, oh, this just does not work for me. And it sometimes it's not even really a commentary on their preceptorship. It's It can even be just that you have a unique learning style and that that didn't work for you. And you want to make sure that other learners with a unique learning style have an opportunity to assimilate information in the same way as maybe the more conventional learners. Yeah. I guess reflecting back on it, I have had experiences um, like that where it is kind of frustrating as the learner uh, when you just aren't able to click with your preceptor and um, you just feel like the wheels are spinning in the mud a little bit. Um, as a preceptor, how do you uh, work with students that maybe have a different learning style or students or residents um, that have a different learning style uh, from, I guess, your preferred learning style or teaching method yeah so that that's definitely something that um, i probably encounter even more than i'm aware because a lot of that relies on a lot of identifying those situations relies on self-reflection from the learner and communication from the learner so you know i can ask a learner you know how do you learn best and um, what do you feel is effective um, for learning new concepts or applying new concepts or, or what have you. And that does require uh, ability to self-reflect because if a learner thinks that, you know, maybe maybe that learner has always had to read textbooks, you know, going through our education system. And so they believe that they got this far doing what they were told. And, and so they think that they're a textbook learner and maybe they're not. Um, but they just have not had the opportunities uh, to explore other ways of learning, or um, they have not really self-reflected on it enough to recognize that that's not something that's worked well for them. So I think that that probably I've encountered it more than I know, just because of the ability of a learner to identify um, how they learn best may not always be there um, because, it, like I said, it really depends on exposure and self-reflection. But when I do, then I think the important part is regular assessment and feedback. And and by assessment, I don't mean testing or quizzing the learner. Uh, it's more just sort of like checking in and being like, is this working for you? And being able to very freely iterate your process with that learner. So if you're like, okay, I, I, they told me that they were a visual learner and I've now adapted my style to very visual as you see it as the preceptor, 
maybe that's not working for that learner. And so you got to make sure that you're checking in with them and, and being like, how are we doing here before writing off like, oh, they're unteachable because I switched to their style and they still didn't get it. Um, so, you know, I think that, that the open communication is, is really important for, for that. But at the same time, um, I do try to, and whether this is right or wrong, I do try to impart my learning style onto residents as well, um, because I found it so effective um, to, to learn more visually and from a multimedia approach because we have access to all of these things. And a lot of the evidence, the educational evidence out there kind of shows that really we all sort of are these multimedia learners. Um, it's just that we haven't had the opportunity to explore those because that's a relatively new mode of learning, right? I mean, still college classes are a lecturer up at front and some notes <laughs> and, there's some changes happening there, but uh, but our system, even as we talk about different learning styles and and such, it's still built for for like reading and assimilating information through reading. Um, and so when we explore other multimedia type of approaches, I think that from what I've seen anecdotally and from what a lot of literature supports, um, we're able to really um, maybe surpass our learning abilities that as we perceived them before. Yeah. Uh, you brought up something that I really liked, and I feel like it's something that was instilled in us by our residency program, and that is uh, self-reflection. So as a pre, and you, you're kind of touching on this a little bit, I kind of hoping to dive a little bit deeper, but as a preceptor, how do you um, self-reflect um, and kind of stay and, and continuously sharpen your game to say um, as a preceptor to ensure that you are providing the highest level of, I guess, precepting uh, that you possibly can? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it's really easy to end up just resting on what you know especially if you work in a specialty area. Um, I am internal medicine and I have a few specializations, um, you know, HIV, palliative care, but even just internal medicine alone, even though it's not really considered a specialty, to me in many ways it, it almost is. You specialize in this sort of like um, acute care that is not ICU, it's not specific to like, you know, hemonc or or rheumatology or id but it it touches on these in in basic ways um and so i think it's very easy to fall back on you know i haven't gotten any complaints so far so i'm just gonna forever continue doing what i'm doing because that's working and now i'm just gaining years of seniority in my expertise as a preceptor doing internal medicine or whatever your specialty might be but I think that the, the self-reflection process is really important for preceptors as much as it is for residents and, and other learners because um, medicine doesn't stay the same and healthcare doesn't stay the same as an institution and um, our world doesn't stay the same. It's 
changing and and kind of what I was talking about with technology and such, you know, automating more stuff, the roles of a pharmacist are changing. Um, and so if you stay the same, your your preceptorship will become stagnant really quickly. And I think that that it's not all about going to a conference to learn from a session that talks about um, you know some new new preceptor uh, new preceptor technique or or preceptor mantra that you need to instill into your practice. But sometimes it's really just thinking about the challenges that you had uh, with a resident, um, maybe challenges that you've had before, but making sure that that you actually are reflecting on those challenges to say, could this have gone differently? Um, knowing what I know now, you know, hindsight 2020, but knowing what I know now, what could I have done differently to have made that more effective? Is my perception of who I am as a preceptor accurate? Um, I personally think that I'm a preceptor that harps more than other preceptors on pathophysiology and a deep understanding of medication mechanism of action and pathophys um, so that you can have a more intelligent conversation with a physician, uh, meeting them more in the middle about their expertise and adding yours. Um, it also, I think, lends itself to that gray area where you have to use logic. If you don't have a, a breadth of understanding of how a medication works in terms of disease state management, its own mechanism of action, and the pathophysiology of that disease, then you're going to be less effective at coming up with um, with a solution in that that gray area where there may not be a guideline. So that's what I think my preceptorship is, um, as well as being sort of this like maybe warmer, more soft presence um, as a preceptor. But I do take time at least every year, but probably multiple times a year if I am thinking back now to really think about like, is my perception of how I precept and who I am actually accurate? You know, you can think you're a nice person and be a, a complete asshole to everybody and not even realize it because in your mind, you're a nice person. Um, so I think that really reflecting on what you even perceive to be the perception of yourself, is that true? Um, you know, probably from uh, from rotating with me that one of the things I like to ask learners after they've completed a presentation of some kind or an in-service or a topic discussion is rather than saying, you know, what did you do well? What did you do poorly? Or what did you do well? What were your opportunities? Um, instead, I like to say, um, if you were to give this presentation, this activity, this topic discussion, again, what might you do differently knowing what you know now from doing this round of said activity? And I think that that, what I'm trying to accomplish there is almost like a subconscious self-reflection on the things that we do. Because when someone asks you, you know, what did you do wrong here? Um, even if you are so open to feedback and uh, to what your preceptor says and you know that they're not trying to be aggressive, that statement is is aggressive. And it, I think it makes people naturally defensive, um, as well as making people feel like they need to find the wrong thing. 
and so that they can talk about that. And maybe there wasn't anything that was really wrong, but maybe there were some opportunities to improve. Um, so really, the the realistic thing is actually giving the presentation again, because it doesn't really matter what you did wrong if you're not giving that same presentation. It's really think about if you were to give this presentation again, what would you do differently knowing what you know? And I think that what that really creates, like I said, was is a passive reflection on the things that you do, the, the stuff you put your time into. And hopefully that can permeate into other aspects of your job, not just activities, but you know, every time you have an interaction with maybe a difficult physician and you you dread it every time, afterwards being like, were were I to do that same interaction again, how might I do this differently in order to be more successful? Yeah, that's really great. I think um, I will definitely attest that you are definitely the preceptor who focuses the most on pathophysiology and uh, just that deep understanding of how these medications work. Um, and I feel like that's one thing that I've taken away from your rotation, even though it was oh so, so many months ago, um, is that we do need to bring um, kind of value to the table by having these deep discussions as well um, with physicians. And you kind of have started to touch on this a little bit. Um, maybe just uh, quick thoughts on like the most effective way to give feedback. I, I know you kind of already answered this by saying, what would you do differently? I think some other methods out there that I've heard that I personally like are kind of what would you do the same, uh, what would you stop doing, and uh, what would you change? Um, have you heard of any other tips and tricks or tried any other kind of ways of delivering feedback? Yeah, you know, I mean, I definitely think that the self-assessment part is great um, because that's the important takeaway skill, right? You know, we we don't critique residents or learners because we derive some sort of pleasure from showing that, that we can judge their work. Um, it's really to try to instill, I mean, really it's kind of that modeling part of preceptorship. It's really to try to instill the self-reflection. So me telling you what I've identified as opportunities is to try to help train you to identify those same things on your own. Um, and so that's why I think having the learner self-reflect first and asking them questions before you offer your own feedback to see how it lines up is an important, an important first step. But, you know, kind of tying in with your last question as well, about uh, you know assessing your own preceptorship is you know there there there's standard ways to ask or, or deliver feedback or ask residents to self-evaluate themselves, but I really liked my whole if you were to do this activity again, how would you do it? Um, how much you do it differently, knowing what you know now? That really kind of all came about because. I didn't like the verbiage that was being used, you know, what did you do wrong or or what were your weaknesses 
or even opportunities. I mean, it kind of sounds a little softer and nicer, but um, I guess the way I looked at it was I was like, opportunities for what? The activity is over. There's no opportunities left. Like the opportunity was had and now we're just critiquing it. So it, it sort of felt false to ask about opportunities. I don't know. Maybe I should backtrack and say like it, words are very meaningful to me. I think, you know, words are our way of communicating with each other. Communication skills is maybe one of the most important things on this planet right now is is how we interact and communicate with each other. And um, words have the ability to lift you up and, and elate you. And they also have the ability to really bring you down and and kind of ruin you. So the selection of words to me is very important. So that's my my disclosure. <laughs> um, and so that had me really reflect on the way that we deliver feedback. And um, I don't think that I'm a soft preceptor because I'm trying to be soft. I think I come across as soft because I try to be very selective with my words, with learners. And all of this potential to my actual answer, which is that I think that when it comes to delivering feedback or critiquing or or any of that kind of stuff with learners, we as preceptors need to think about why are we even saying these things, you know, <laughs> like what the, the activity is over. So how is this actually relevant? Like, can I prove to my learner that they need to hear this feedback? Does that make sense? Like, it's kind of like if you've done, I don't know, some grand rounds presentation for a rotation in an area that you're never going to practice again, what does it matter that maybe your review of the literature was a little weak or that your presentation style uh, lacked XYZ? And so that's where I think that we as preceptors need to actually think about it, because there are probably some instances where you don't need to harp on the same things that you would for someone where this is their field or that maybe it's a more core rotation or core activity that they did. Um, so I think that we got to look at what are we harping on when we're giving feedback? Is this actually important? Just because there was something that was maybe not done great or to our level, does it even matter? Or is there something that's actually more relevant for this learner? And that's the opportunity for them because it's something that they will have to come across again. Um, and so that that's sort of how I approach feedback for learners is what are the real takeaway skills that are applicable to any rotation or any learning experience? Um, I, I, can't, I honestly can't remember if I harped on this much with you, Vasily, but um, with learners in the past, sometimes I really focus on what their actual material looks like for presentation, because that is your visual. That's your you're the audio and, and then you have this visual accompaniment. And so how do you create the most perfect primer or the most perfect presentation? And that is a transferable skill to almost anything. Um, so really just kind of not just giving feedback for the sake of giving feedback because farm academic demands it or what have you, but how is that feedback going to be made so that it's meaningful to the resident for what 
they need out of this residency or this rotation or their career or as a person, um, what, what really matters and will help their development versus what really doesn't. And we don't even need to, to use our words to discuss that because it's just in the background. It's not important. Yeah, I will definitely say you, you definitely did harp on the um, quality of the visuals of the presentation because you're right, that is a transferable skill. And I think kind of listening you describe your style of giving feedback uh, takes me back to a, a book I was reading. And in this book, they describe this, uh, she's like the, the greatest duelist, right? The best warrior. Um, and it's not because she's the smartest, it's not because she's the fastest, it's not because she's the strongest, but it's because she's the most efficient, right? She never takes three steps when two steps will do the trick. And I will say that's something that I think you you did a really great job of when I was with you in terms of delivering feedback and you, you brought it up again, but I'm just really trying to drive the point home is, is sometimes less is more. You know, if, if, if you're like exactly what you were saying, if you were giving feedback solely for the point of giving feedback because it's, it's time for the weekly feedback session or the end of the uh, rotation uh, feedback summary on Farm Academic or the school's uh, website is due and you're just giving feedback, um, it's not really the best thing to do as a preceptor. So I think one of the greatest things that you did is is never give three pieces of feedback when two pieces of feedback is enough um, to give the learner something to chew on, something to digest, and something to improve on um, for future rotations and in, in their future practice. Really well said. And uh, for future listeners, Vasily was an excellent resident. <laughs> you don't need to say that, but thank you. It's, it is true, though. Uh, I, I feel like you almost painted the picture of this struggling resident for yourself, but uh, but Vasily was one of the difficult residents for me because he came so well prepared. So as I mentioned, it was harder to create the optimal learning environment for someone who came in so um, with a really great knowledge base and and had prior great rotations, came with clinical experience and the ability to reason. And a strong moral compass. <laughs> <laughs> Most importantly. Um, I think I've kind of touched on all of the big points. I think we had a lot of great discussion. Uh, are there any points that you feel like uh, you think could further benefit any listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think um, depending on who the audience is, whether you're a preceptor, I think that preceptorship should be inspiring. Um, I am inspired by being a preceptor. The learners themselves inspire me in different ways. They hold me accountable and they teach me lessons all the time. Um, and that that's the inspiring part. Sometimes that lesson is I'm, I'm not always right. Um, I'm not always right about the things that I'm even trying to impart because sometimes I'm trying to learn something new so that I can find an effective way to teach it to someone else and I might screw that up and and that's humbling and I think that that's an important thing that no matter how senior you are you still have the ability to learn and you still have the ability to be wrong and you accept and embrace that because that's a powerful lesson for learners as well that it's okay 
to make a mistake. This is a profession that demands 100% accuracy, but that's not realistic for any human. <laughs> and we can strive for it, but we need to give ourselves the allowance that we can be wrong and that that's okay. Um, we just have to do our best to make sure that when we are wrong, it's still safe. Um, and then on the flip side to learners, um, whether that's students or residents, I think that you as a student or a learner or a resident are entitled to a, a good preceptor and um, you should put in all the effort that you should be putting into your rotation. But I think we should be making sure that we are holding our preceptors accountable for a positive learning experience. I don't think that I've come across many or any preceptors who didn't want to do right by their student or learner uh, resident. Um, I think everyone, whether they were sort of forced into the role because it was a job requirement or not, they we all want to do a good job um, with our learners. We want to impart knowledge. Um, we may not all want to operate at the same level, the same high level, but we, we don't want to do wrong by our learners. And so engage your preceptor in a discussion about their preceptorship. Um, hold them accountable if you uncover something to the contrary. Those interactions are meaningful for both sides. And I think that um, ultimately open communication between learners and preceptors will, will benefit both. So I think that, that my big takeaway um, in preceptorship is um, preceptors continue to be learners as well and discover things about themselves. And um, and so never be afraid to challenge them. That's That's kind of what we're here for. Yeah, I will definitely say the sword swings both ways. And I feel like a great preceptor will always appreciate being challenged because uh, we precept because we love to teach. And um, I feel like you and me are similar about this where we're kind of like knowledge geeks and like learning new stuff is very uh, interesting. So if I know personally, if you can teach me something new, I'm super happy because it, it just improves my practice, right? And I can teach it to all my future you know, students and residents. Yeah, 100%. And, and, you know, I mean, I've had scenarios where I have been, I've said, I've misspoken um, to a learner before and been corrected. And I always, I, I think I've always kind of responded to that positively, but it does sort of, that that's almost a front, like inside I'm like, oh my God, how could I be wrong? And I'm like having this internal freak out, but um, but outwardly, I'm like, oh, you know, I, I think you're right. Let's look into that and and discuss it later. But it's after that that I really self-reflect and and give myself the opportunity to say, yes, I am not always right. And in those situations, I'll usually when I meet with that learner again, apologize and be like, hey, I misspoke before and um, and you were absolutely right. And I apologize for that. And I hope that you see that it's OK to be wrong sometimes and it's OK to misspeak. And we got to give ourselves that allowance. And like I said, just as long as we're being safe by our patients. I agree 100%. Daryush, my man, thank you for coming on to the show today. I think we had a really enlightening discussion. I personally learned a lot. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day off to uh, stop by. Oh, I'm happy to 
uh, engage with you anytime, Vasily. It was my pleasure. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you guys next time.